Well, if you are new to us, uh, we are going through the Gospel of John together. This is week seven, so don't worry if you're like, oh, great, I'm already six weeks behind, I'm not going to understand. You should still be able to follow along with us this morning, Um, but go ahead and turn to John chapter seven. We're going to pretty much just start right away here and get after this. We've got a lot to cover. I want to make sure we are able to spend some time uh, in this chapter, deciphering some of it. Uh, spending a little bit of time along the way in, in different sections of it. Uh, if you have been with us, you know that Jesus has developed quite a reputation already. And people, many people uh, do not like him, especially the religious leaders of his day. They, they wanted to kill him. They were done with him. He had been claiming that he was God. He was, but they didn't like that. And claiming he came from heaven, which he did. Claiming he was the Messiah. Um, all truth, but they didn't believe it. Um, They thought it was blasphemy. They wanted to kill him. And because of this, we're going to see in our text today, Jesus actually, in a sense, lays low. Um, He's going to choose to stay away from Jerusalem, Judea area, the surrounding areas, uh, because he knows that they're after him. They know that he knows they want to kill him. Uh, We're going to see that right off the bat here. John chapter 7. Let's read the first five verses, and then we'll just start kind of Uh, slowly taking this uh, and digesting it uh, together. So verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing all these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So when you read that verse 5, a lot of commentators are going to have a different take on this. But basically, we can't get away from the fact that we realize and we know and it's disheartening to think that his own brothers did not believe in him, at least at at this point. And so they would say... That those comments that they were just making were actually sarcastic. Some commentators would say that, or disrespectful. Uh, kind of a, if you have brothers, um, you know, you can maybe imagine you're calling yourself the Messiah. They may have a few things to uh, say about it. And so uh, some commentators look at this as him, them saying, you know, once you're going up to Jerusalem, do some of those magic tricks you do. See if you can't, um, you know, get a bunch of people to follow you since you say you are the Messiah. So, There's some that believe that. Some just say, no, it's just they didn't believe yet. And they were kind of like other people. We want to see more of this stuff. We want to see more of these miracles. We want to see more of these things that you can do to kind of help us understand or or really believe you are who you say you are. Either way, um, they didn't believe in him. And the good news is, if you've read your Bible, you know that they eventually do. We're not going to go there today, but you can go to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and you'll see that his brothers are actually in the upper room with the disciples and Mary and the other believers um, after Jesus is resurrected um, and he's uh, ascended. And it's right before Pentecost. So eventually we see that they do come to believe. It's just, I mean, obviously when someone resurrects from the dead, has a glorified body, and then ascends to heaven, it has a way of changing your opinion of them, right? Going, like, well, maybe we were wrong. Uh, obviously he is who he says he is and was. And so at this point, though, they don't believe Verse 1 tells us that, again, Jesus stayed in and around the Galilee area. You can kind of think of Galilee um, in the sense of what we, in our world, in the United States at least here, we look at counties. 
Um, that's kind of what they were, it, it's similar to the towns inside of Galilee that we've talked about already. Capernaum is, is there. Um, uh, you also have Nazareth. So it's like this area, this province, this county, we would say. Um, and then you had Judea that was in the south. That's where you'd have had Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And so there was these different areas. And they're saying Jesus was hanging out up in the area of Galilee, far away from uh, Judea. Now, again, the reason for that is these Jewish leaders want to kill him. And uh, Jesus will eventually, you know the story, most of you probably know the story, and it's important for me to say it this way, eventually Jesus will allow them to kill him. It's not like, oh man, Jesus, you did a great job dodging them for a while, man, they finally got you. That's not what happened. Uh, None of this is going to happen until God says it's going to happen. And when God says, okay, now's the time, Jesus will allow them to arrest him. Jesus will allow them to kill him because it was for us that he died. And so we need to understand that. You need to understand the, the, that side of it. This isn't a, oh, wow, Jesus did a great job of dodging him for a while, but man, no, that's not what happened. It was all on God's timetable. Remember, uh, again, we talked about that uh, a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, that Jesus is on a divine timetable. Nothing will happen until God wants it to happen. So let's keep reading verses 6 through 13. It says, Therefore Jesus told them, and here, here it is, for instance, we'll see it a few times here, My time is not yet here. For, for you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. <clears throat> you go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time, there it is again, my time has not yet fully come. <clears throat> After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, but not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, uh, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there were, it was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And so, Jesus doesn't go with his brothers. They go down to this festival, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And as a matter of fact, every Jewish male, 21 years of age and older, there were three festivals that you always attended or you were expected to attend. There was the Passover, there was the the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was Pentecost. And so everyone is assuming Jesus is going to be there. This is one of those ones you go to. And so he's a Jew. He's going to show up. He's going to be there um, in Jerusalem for this festival of tabernacles. And so the Jewish leaders are looking for him. Like, he should be here somewhere. Let's find him because they want to kill him. Then there's this other group that are kind of his haters that, that are like looking, but they're also they're gossiping about him and they're talking bad about him. And oh, he, you know, he deceives people. He's a, he's a bad person. You can't believe he claims to be God. And then there are his supporters, the people that are kind of like more on the whole Jesus side of things. They may not necessarily be believers yet, but they're like, no, I think he's a good guy. I think he's a good man. I, you know, they kind of want more information maybe. But no matter who they are, nobody wants to talk about him publicly. Nobody wants to really say it out loud. There's kind of whispering here and there because they know that how controversial Jesus is. And they know they're afraid of what could happen to them if somebody hears them talking about Jesus. Which, to me, this is so amazing um, because it's still the same to this day. 2,000 years later, the name of Jesus still creates the same controversy. That should tell you a little bit of something about who he is and was. Uh, the, the fact that we're here over 2,000 years later and you still go to family gatherings, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, reunions, whatever it is. And, and someone will probably say something like, hey, hey, guys, let's, 
don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. Please don't bring those two things up. And the reason is because we know that there's different opinions and that could cause a big uproar. Now the family's all mad at each other. You don't want Uncle Earl getting on the Trump train and everybody that doesn't like Trump, you know, going crazy at the family reunion. So don't talk about that. You know, let's not go there. We don't care. We don't want to just, just don't go there. Do that on your own time. You know, and, and don't bring up religion. Don't bring up Jesus. We don't want Aunt Margaret talking about Jesus because then, you know, all the non-church goers in our family and the people that don't really care for Jesus or those that are, you know, we obviously can look at and tell that they're not living the life they should be. It's just going to cause a problem. Don't talk about Jesus. And so Jesus is and always has been controversial because of who and what he claims and what he calls people to. It's just who he is. It, it, because here's the thing, you got to figure out what you're going to do with Jesus. Everybody in this world, anyone that's ever lived has got to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus. You're either going to believe he is who he says he is, or you're going to believe that, that he's not that. And so, and whatever you believe is going to determine how you live your life. It's going to be your worldview. It's like, if Jesus really is who he says he is, man, I've got a whole lot of work to do. I've got some things I need to change in my life. There's things he's called me to. There's a way of living that I have to stick to. There's a word I've got to stand on. Either way, what you believe about Jesus affects your eternity. And so it's important that you get your stance right with him. And it was no different than lots of controversy anytime Jesus' name came up. So even though they don't realize Jesus is there in Jerusalem, because again, he's secretly there, kind of being quiet. They're already talking about him. They're looking for him. But now he's going to speak. And you can imagine now that he's going to speak and kind of reveal he's there, it's going to start the uproar. Uh, People are going to have a lot to say about it. And remember, they're there for this festival. That's important. Festival of Tabernacles. I will explain a little bit later what that is and kind of how it relates here. But it's just because it's going to be super important as to some of the things that Jesus is going to say. And that's what Jesus was great at, right? He was great at taking the moment, maybe what was around him, whether it was the land or the people he was talking to, and saying, look at this, look at that, look at And he would just relate it right to what he was talking about so people could make the connection. He's going to do that again. And so if you know a little bit about the Festival of Tabernacles, it's going to help. Uh, when we get to that part of the of the story. But first, let's read uh, verses 14 and uh, 15. It says, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get so much, get such learning without having been taught? These guys, they knew. They knew that Jesus had not been through their rabbinic schools. He had not trained in, under any of their guys, any of the, the real smart people. He would not gone to any of this. He hadn't gone to the university here to know all the stuff he knows. And yet he's speaking and he's teaching in a way that is incredible. No one teaches like this with this kind of authority, this kind of knowledge. And they just can't believe it. So they're just like, where is he getting this from? Like, who did he study under? How is this happening? And Jesus is like, ah, he's about to say, I'll tell you exactly where it comes from, where I learned all this. Verse 16 through 19 says, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. It comes from God. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, this is a strong statement that Jesus is making. He's saying, y'all want to judge me, right, to the point where you want to, you want to kill me, yet you don't even keep the law perfectly, and yet, I'm just going to let you know, I do. There's nothing false about me. And they, they know that 
the thing is, they can't prove him wrong. I mean, he's done all these things. He's done these miracles. He's, he's never done anything that they could really label and say, see right there, other than they don't like what he says, but his actions, they couldn't disprove them. And so when he says these things, it's like, man, how do we get him? How do we say, oh, well, there's this? They just couldn't do that to him. And so what they do is, because <laughs> they can't prove him wrong, they default to what we do in like third grade, right? They just say, we're just going to call him a name, right? We're going to come up with a name. We're going to call him a name. And that's what happens in verse 20. He's like, you are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Um, Who's trying to kill you? So they're like, they're like saying, oh, whatever. You know, you're making all this up. No one's trying to kill you. Uh, you're making, no, that's, that's not true. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses. I love that Jesus always tries to correct them. But the patriarchs actually came from Abraham, but you all think it's Moses. Bless you. You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Now, we'll pause here for a minute. He is referring to the story that Pastor Hunter uh, talked about and, and taught us um, back uh, in, in chapter 5 with the disabled man who's laying by the pool. He'd been there for 38 years, um, and Jesus comes and Jesus heals him, but he heals him on the Sabbath, and they have a big problem with that because it was considered work. And so Jesus says, just reason with me for a minute. He's trying to get like, guys, just think about this for just a minute with me. Yes, there's a law about the Sabbath, not working on the Sabbath. But wait a minute. He said, Moses, right? He commanded you to circumcise the, your, your baby boys on the eighth day, which I'm going to give you a little side note here. I, I, I just, for me, and maybe those of you who like this, the rest of you can just push pause for a second. For those who love when the, when science catches up with the Bible, that always makes me happy. And so, that fact that we now know that medically that the eighth day is when the clotting factors uh, in, in the baby's blood are at the highest levels, and that's why God said, wait until the eighth day to circumcise your boys. It's sort of kind of like, oh, well, God kind of knows what he's doing, right? He's the one that created us. He, this is long before this, and now science catches up and goes, oh, this makes sense. You know, this is, oh, really? Well, the Bible told you that a long time ago. You should pay more attention to it. Anyway, now unpause. Let's go back. So there, there he says, listen, eighth day you do this. And not only will you do it, you'll do this even if it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus isn't calling them out for doing it. He's saying, you know, you guys say that you're, you don't even think that you're breaking the law when you do that. Because why? Well, it's because it was something that was necessary, right? It was something that was needed. And so Jesus says, so here is your own law, yet you're, you don't abide by it when it comes to this particular thing. And because I heal a man on the Sabbath, something that is for his good, something that was a good thing, you're going to want to kill me over this? Again, he's trying to get them to understand, you're so narrow-minded. You, you can't see past the end of your nose. You, you're all so stuck in this law that, and somehow like it's going to save you. You're, you're missing the Messiah that's right before you. He's trying to get them to understand how foolish they really are. And then he adds this, and this is really important. Verse 24, he says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, important verse here for a lot of reasons, and that's why I want to focus on this for just a minute here, because I want to refute this idea that we aren't ever to judge somebody, okay? I, I, it drives me crazy when I hear people say this, and I know it's, a lot of times it's well-intended, and they know other scripture, and so they kind of mix it together here, but you've, you've heard people say this. I've heard a lot of people say this with confidence, even thinking it's biblical, you know, don't judge me. You're not allowed to judge. You shouldn't judge me. You shouldn't be judging me, and so I'll give them there's truth somewhat to that. 
Okay, but here, here's the issue. I want to point out that Jesus is also telling us here to make judgments. Don't, don't, don't miss this, right? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Don't, he doesn't say don't judge at all. And in this passage, there's a big difference. There's a big difference in being judgmental and making right judgments or judging correctly. So the first part of what Jesus says here has to do with being judgmental, right? He says, stop judging by mere appearances. That typically is what people are referring to when they make their little statement. And I agree with that. Being judgmental is making a judgment without all the facts. That's what being judgmental is. And Jesus is obviously saying this isn't good. We've all been there. We've, this is all, all of us who've had this done to us. And we know how much this hurts when someone judges you, maybe even takes it further, spreads rumors about you based on assumptions, based on their own feelings about you, based on their perceptions, not based on facts. They haven't come to you. They haven't talked to you. They haven't tried to figure it out, you know, one-on-one like scripture tells us. They just decide they're going to talk about it. And so they, they go and they do these things and it's, it's very judgmental and they're judging by mere appearances. Jesus says, no, don't do that. The second part is make a right judgment or judge correctly. Making a right judgment is evaluating actions with truth evaluating actions with truth. And this is where our world today, and even the church, and I don't just mean First Christian Church. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm, we've got issues just like every other church. But I'm talking about the church universal. I feel like this is where we are missing it so badly today. Because we all know we are living in a time where we are being pressed as Christ followers, as Christians, to accept a lot of things that the Bible doesn't accept. We are being pressed to accept the whole LGBTQ plus um, agenda and what they believe is okay, what they want, and, and, and they basically are saying, This is the way it is, and don't judge me. Don't you judge me. If you judge me, you're going against your own word of what God's word says. And, and so, if you make a judgment call and try to call any of this sin or call it out, they will flip it and say, You're sinning by saying, by judging me. This is kind of the, the narrative of, of, of how it's going, at least right now in our, in our day and time. And, and it's just not true. It's not accurate from a biblical perspective at all. Jesus told us to judge correctly. Now, of course, there's, let me be honest and transparent. There are church-going people, the people who claim to be Christians, who will treat someone who claims to be a part of the LGBTQ community inappropriately, or whatever sin you want to put there. But they will, they will, they will treat them inappropriately. They will judge them based off of the way they dress, the way they talk, whatever it is, just automatically by an appearance only type of thing. And that's wrong. Never are we given the okay from God's word to treat anyone disrespectfully. But there is plenty of times in scripture that God points out that, and I know I'm pinpointing one area, but it's the hot topic right now. It's not the only one, but there's plenty of plenty where God points out that the LGBTQ plus lifestyle is sinful. It's not me or you who are Christ's followers who are saying it's sinful. It's God who says it's sinful. And so the issue here is not that we've made this up or it's an accusation that we've come up with. So what do we got to do with this? How do you handle this? Well, God's word is truth. So we aren't making assumptions by saying it's wrong and calling it sin. We have a right to judge these lifestyles as sin based on the facts that we have that are in God's word. And though it probably will not feel like it, the most loving thing that we can do is explain to someone struggling with any sin that it's sin. It's not loving to ignore it, 
to not talk about it or to avoid it. If we really believe what God's word says and what God says about these things, whether it's homosexuality or whether it's lying or stealing or, or whatever it is, you know, lusting, whatever, that if, if, we got, if we're going to believe that, we know what God's word says about it, yet we're not going to talk about it. I don't want to judge anybody. Even though we have facts, even though they may be publicly saying this is who I am and what I believe and what I stand for, and no one's going to debate it, no one's going to say, listen, in a loving, gentle, respectful way, it's not okay because God's word says it's not okay. If we're not going to do that, then shame on us for not standing on what the word of God says, even in the face of animosity, even though we are not going to be looked at as maybe the way we want people to look at us because we truly are trying to do something good. Instead, we're called, we, we are called to judge sin based on God's word. And again, we should always address it with gentleness and respect. Now, what we don't have the right to do, and this is important that you hear this side as much as the other side, is we do not have the right to elevate any of those sins higher than any of our own sins. And as Christians, we're good at this. Oh, I can't believe this. Oh my gosh, that just disgusts me that they would do that, that they would go there, that they would say that, that they would dress like that, that they would be a part of that. Oh my goodness, I can't even stand it. You need to know your sin is just as disgusting to God as theirs. Okay, so we, we, don't, we don't need to elevate anybody else's sin as if they're worse than you. And this, Jesus talks about this as well. So we've got to balance these things out. Now, we don't have the right to be hateful. We don't have the right to, to be mean towards somebody because they're currently living in sin or they're struggling with a sin. But we do need to ask ourselves, am I being judgmental or am I judging correctly when it comes to these things? Do I have all the facts? Have I gone to the person and heard the truth? Have I compared whatever it is with the truth of God's word? Or am I just judging off of appearances and what other people say and what other people think? Now, I also want to make sure I say this, and then we'll, we'll go back into our, our... I just think it's important that we talk about this. And I want you to hear me on this. We still have to be willing to stand for what is right. Even though the name-calling and the hate will come toward us. It's the world we live in. It, I know we are, we are sheltered somewhat still here in where we live in a very conservative community. But it's coming here quickly, and it's already everywhere else and, and many other places. And so we are going to be looked at as bad people, unloving, horrible, terrible people because we stand on God's word. That doesn't, just because that that's coming doesn't mean we shy away from it and we don't talk about it and we don't stand on what God's word says about it. We have to be willing to stand on God's word no matter how unpopular it is. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's pretty unpopular these days. But it's the most loving thing that we can do for those who are lost. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying if you're a Christian, you better get some backbone and thick skin if you're going to stand with Jesus. It was no different in Jesus' day. Because the evil is only going to increase until the day that Jesus deals with it once and for all. So if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, you don't get to pick and choose what you believe and don't believe in this. You either believe it all or you don't believe it at all. And so if you're going to stand on this, you've got to stand on it fully, no matter what it costs you. Friendships, relationships with other people, someone not liking you, someone thinking things of you that aren't true. Now, if they think those things of you because you're a jerk, because you do the things you say and the way you blast them on social media, because you're handling it in a way that you shouldn't be even handling it by even what Jesus tells us, that's a whole different story. But if you're standing on God's word and you're doing this with gentleness and respect, but you're not afraid to 
call sin, sin, and say, listen, this is what God says, then you, you need to be ready. You need to be ready for the rebuke that's coming. And again, Jesus is controversial. What he stands for, what his word stands for, always has been, always will be. Let's keep reading. Verses 25 through 27. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they were, they were trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? How come they're not doing anything to this guy, right? I mean, well, we, all, we know because it's not the timing for it, but they can't figure it out. But we know that, the, that where this man is from, and when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. These people are very confused, okay? They don't know. They don't understand. They don't really, they obviously don't really realize where Jesus is from. They don't know because they're saying that where he's from is he's from Galilee, which is not where he originally was from. And so they're making up stuff a little bit here. They don't know where he was born, but they should have known where he was born, right? Because remember the Magi, when they came to see Jesus um, after he was born, goes to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem. They ask King Herod, you know, where, where uh, is the king of the Jews going to be born? And he goes and gets the teachers of the, the law, um, the chief priests, and they say, oh, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And so then they quote from the, Micah the prophet. So of course they should have known, and these people are just confused. They, they're just throwing out stuff right now. You know, you've met people like this. You know, they, they get in a controversy. They get in a argument, whatever it is, and they just start saying stuff. You're like, what? what? I don't even know what you're even saying. It doesn't even make sense what you're saying. That's kind of what's happening here. Let's continue, verses 28 through 30. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. <clears throat> but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, we see another reference of, to God's timing. No matter how much they hate Jesus, no matter what he says, Jesus isn't going to the cross until his appointed time. And we just keep seeing this time and time again in Scripture. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me. That encourages me. It reminds me, it takes my mind to, to Psalm 139 verse 16 that says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We all have a beginning date and an ending date here on this earth, and nothing is going to happen to me or to you to change that time. God is in control. Amen? And we got to live that. we got to live in that. And he loves us, and he wants what's best for us, and he has a plan for us. But it wasn't Jesus' time here, so no one's going to lay a hand on him. I mean, it's obvious they could have, but they don't because God's in control. And so verse 31 through 34 says, Still many in the crowd believed in him. And they said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? They're trying to get Jesus back a little bit. Like, listen, this guy's done all this crazy miracles and stuff. You sure this isn't him? Verse 32, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Now, again, we know what he's talking about here. Those of us who have read the rest of the Bible, we know the story of Jesus. We know what's going to happen. They did not know. They're, in the, they're living it. They're in the midst of it. They don't have the Bible. They don't have the, the ability to be able to look forward and say, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. Jesus is saying he's Obviously, talking about he's going to die on the cross. He's going to be raised from the dead three days later. Then 40 days after his resurrection, he's going to ascend 
to heaven. But again, they are confused by what Jesus is saying here. And so then they say some more things that are kind of crazy. Verse 35 through 36, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks to teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So we're going to pause here because they're kind of in the state of confusion. Jesus is saying, telling them, he's prophesying some things here that are going to happen. But now what he's about to say is going to be where it's important for us to understand this whole Feast of Tabernacles. And so don't forget, that's why they're there. They are gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, this celebration and so it's important that we know a little bit about this. This is a seven-day celebration, eighth day, this kind of like a sacred day where they, they would have uh, had kind of like a Sabbath time. But during this, what they would do is they would go and they would make these makeshift like tents. It's also called the Festival of Booths. So it's like they would make these little makeshift, what we would maybe call a tent, um, that they would live in. And in their backyard or wherever, they would make these, and they would live in that for seven days. And what they were doing was they were trying to make sure they never forgot about uh, their ancestors that came through the wilderness and how they had to live and, uh, you know, in an ongoing way. Not only that, but this was also a festival of we're going to remember the wilderness, but we're also going to remember that though we had nothing, we're in these little shack things, God still provided for us. This was kind of like in a similar way, not exactly, but kind of like Thanksgiving for us, where it's, it's about being thankful for what, how God has provided and taken care of. And so this is, for them, a way to do that. And they spend seven days just um, praising God and thanking him for providing for them. Now, specifically, we'll get into this a little bit more in a second, but for the water that God provided for them um, that came out of the rock. And so um, this, is, this is what they're celebrating. This is what they're doing. And this is what Jesus is going to capitalize on here next to help them understand his identity. Jesus is going to say, okay, we're here at this moment. Let me kind of connect these two things together. Verse 37 and 38, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. So he wants everybody to hear this. He's proclaiming this. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So now during the seven day feast, Again, there's, there's even a parade that's kind of happening. The priest is going from the Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam, and he is taking a golden pitcher. He's getting water out of that. He's taking it back up to the, the, uh, the, mount, the Temple Mount, and he is, he's going to pour out this, uh, this water offering. It's called a libation is what it's called. But it, he's going to pour this out at the foot of the altar. And again, this is in remembrance and of what, how God took care of them and provided for them, especially the water out of the rock. And so... And to save them. And then, so I want you to picture, this is what's happening. As, as the priest comes through the crowd, there's, the crowd's there. They're cheering. They're celebrating. This is a big deal, this, this whole entire thing. And this is the last day of the, the festival, the greatest day, John calls it. It's a big moment, um, big crescendo moment. And now picture, the, this water offering has just been poured out. And Jesus now says in this loud voice for everyone to hear, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said rivers of living water will now will flow from within them. So he's telling them he is the water of life. He's using this celebration to help them make this connection of who he is. He's the one whom they need to believe in. And if they do, then springs of living water, water of life will flow out of the heart. Now John immediately explains, like, I want you to understand what Jesus is referring to here. 
Um, and he's saying, listen, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit that's going to come. And so this is verse 39. It says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So John is letting us know the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within those who believe in Jesus. Not yet. Jesus is still with them. Once he's resurrected and he ascends to heaven, then the Holy Spirit will be poured out on those who place their belief and trust in Jesus. Now, quickly, I want to say I could spend a lot of time here on the Holy Spirit. We're gonna, we'll have more time to do that as we go through John. But just a few quick things in case you may be new to the faith and you're like, Holy Spirit, what's this? So Holy Spirit's the third part of the Trinity. You need to understand that. God is one God revealed in three persons, okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is one of the hardest things about God for us to wrap our minds around. I don't care how smart you are, how long you've been a Christian, how much you've studied it, it's still difficult to wrap your mind around the Trinity. And Jesus is saying, you know, here, listen, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to come. This third part of the Trinity is, is going to come. Now, what we need to understand also, is, and I, I think the best illustration, a lot of people have come up with illustrations for the Trinity to try to help us wrap our brain around it, right? And there's a lot of them. Some of them are maybe better than others. Uh, none of them do it justice, but I think one of the ones that I, I, I don't know, that I kind of lean toward more trying to wrap my brain around is, is that of light. And when you put light through a prism, you know, then it separates itself into seven different colors. You know, you get the Roy G. Biv that you were told, taught when you were in school. And so you get that one light, but then all of a sudden you see that they're in seven different colors. And so it's like you have this one, you have one God who reveals himself in three persons. It's, again, it's difficult to understand, but you, it seems like the Holy Spirit always kind of gets left out. Like people are fine with God and Jesus, but then the Holy Spirit, for some reason, I don't know if it freaks people out or what it is. They can't wrap their brain around it, that they, they almost like want to lessen the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Still God as the Holy Spirit. And so understand this as well. The Holy Spirit is not an it, okay? Not an it. It is the, th- he, it, he is the third person of the Trinity. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to come alongside you. I will be with you always. And that's coming. He's, he's announcing this. And, and Jesus uh, has proclaimed here, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. So we see the reaction of those in the crowd listening. Verse 40, on hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? They they. These poor people. Does, does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So all kinds of opinions on Jesus here again, no different than today. People, once again, you bring up Jesus in a room full of people and you're going to get a whole lot of different reactions. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is, and it is what's happening here, and it happens in our day and time all the time, is that you have uneducated people trying to tell other people who Jesus is. They've not done their due diligence. They've not looked into Jesus. They're not educated on who Jesus is. They've not spent any time or very little time investigating him. And this is what was, these people were, they weren't educated even where, on where Jesus was born, among other things. So, so they're throwing around all this stuff. Well, you know, he can't be the Messiah because he was from Galilee. You don't even know. You, you, don't, you haven't even, and they could have known had they done their study, if they had looked into this. 
And it seems like sometimes the loudest voices in the room against Jesus are the people that have done the least amount of research and really spent time with him and really looked into who he is. Because we hear about it all the time, right? People who go out to disprove Jesus and they become Christians because they realize, oh my goodness, when I really put away this whole hat of of just being someone who's going to think one way only, I'm I'm going to open up my mind to what the possibility here. I'm not going to be so biased. I'm not going to let other things tell me what it is and isn't. I'm going to look at what the Bible says. I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to put effort and time into this. You'll see those people many times. I don't know if I can say most of the time, but I would say many times become Christ followers because they realize he is who he says he is. So regardless, they are divided on, on where they stand on who Jesus is. Um, we'll finish this up here. Verses 50, 45 through 49, it says, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And they said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. They're like, this guy's different, y'all. You don't understand the things he's doing, things he's saying. Are you sure that you're not arresting the Messiah? Like, they're they're even leery. And, of course, we're going to, man, listen to the arrogance here from the Pharisees. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees or, or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. So ton of arrogance here. Um, you know, they're saying, have any of the bigwigs believed in him? No. All of us real smart people, the, you know, the Pharisees, these, we know all the laws. Those are just common people, the, those people out there. They don't know anything. Um, they're just stupid people. So don't, why would you even, surely you're not going to be like one of them. Surely you're going to believe what we believe. And so ton of arrogance here. 50 through 52. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So there's so much confusion here. You just want to scream. He's not from Galilee. He's from Judea. He's born in Bethlehem, right? You want to, you want to help him out a little bit. They're, they're, not, they're not getting it. But we have Nicodemus here. Remember from chapter 3 with Nicodemus, right? He's the one who comes to Jesus at night. He's the one that has this whole talk with Jesus about being born again. I believe that more than likely here he's a believer at this point, though secretly, um, which they even tell us that he shows up later on uh, in John as well. Uh, after Jesus has been crucified, he helps Joseph of Arimathea um, bury Jesus' body. So Nicodemus seems to be trying to get them to listen to Jesus, probably in hopes that they would believe in him. Like, man, shouldn't we hear this guy out? Shouldn't you at least before, you know, let's listen to him. But of course, their arrogance won't let that happen. They think they already know everything. And that's how this chapter ends. Now, you could probably guess that one of the biggest messages from this whole chapter is, you know, what we need to kind of go back and think about is, the fact that what you think and believe about Jesus determines everything. What you think and believe about Jesus determines everything. And so we, gotta, we have to spend time really thinking about that. What do I really believe about Jesus? Our salvation rests on what we believe about Jesus. Where we will spend eternity depends on what we truly believe about Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is just leave us with two questions. They really go together, but I'll give them to you one at a time. The first one is just this. I want us to think about and ponder this week. Do I really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, do I really believe that? Not, oh yeah, I've said that. 
No, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? And if your next question is, well, I think I believe it. What do you mean? Well, how do I know if I really believe it? Well, that's the second question. Does my life reflect it? Does my life reflect it? Because if you really believe it, if you really believe he is the son of God, if he really is Lord of your life, then it will show up. Go read the book of James. It's all about this. Your actions will show that you're saved. We've got to make sure that we're not just making statements, broad statements, and then we're not following through with the way that we live our lives. And so do I really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Does my life reflect that? Do you see in Jesus, do you find in Jesus the great soul satisfaction that he guarantees for those who follow him? And I pray that you do. I do. And if you don't or you haven't up to this point, we're going to pray in just a second. And you're going to have an opportunity to do that. You're going to have an opportunity, maybe for the first time, to place your hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ and say, I do believe. I do trust him. And I, I want my life to represent that. I want my life, my actions. I want people to be able to tell, not that I'm perfect because I'm never going to be perfect, but they're going to be able to see in me the Jesus that I follow. So it's something for us to think about because maybe you see yourself in this chapter. Maybe you're some of these people that have a whole, one of these people that has a whole lot of opinions about Jesus, but you've not really, you just know a little bit and yet you're forming all these opinions. Maybe you're one that, that does, but you kind of like want to be like Nicodemus. You kind of want to do it secretly. You're kind of afraid of what somebody else may think or say. And so we need to get there. Where am I in my relationship with Jesus? How, how is it affecting my life? And if there's changes that need to be made, we need to make them. We need to quit putting that off. We need to stand and say, God, help me to be more like who you've called me to be. Help me to be more like Jesus in everything that I say and everything that I do, even if it means there's gonna be a whole bunch of people who don't like me. Let me stand on your word and your word alone.